0: Welcome to The Voice of Insurance, I'm Mark Gagan. One of the perks of this job is being able to access some of the smartest and nicest people in the sector and introduce them to you. These are the sort of people that us journalists turn to when we need a new perspective to help us see the big picture or work out what is really going on behind the scenes. They know a huge amount and they also have access to all corners of the market. They speak clearly and plainly and are also kind enough not to mind journalists asking them a bunch of silly questions. This episode is just one of those opportunities. Andrew Newman and printhan Sathinathan of Willis-Ree are two very smart, very senior and very engaging figures in the reinsurance market. I caught up with them just as Willis-Ree had released its COVID-19 report. This report is the most comprehensive and far-sighted produced by any market participant to date, and I recommend you take time to read it 70 pages. I'll put a link to the report in the podcast notes. Anyway, stay safe in lockdown and enjoy this incredibly wide-ranging and hopefully mind-expanding encounter. I know I certainly did. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest-growing medium and attracts a high-quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The report describes um, the risk from COVID-19 business interruption as an existential threat to the entire industry. Can you explain sort of how you came to that conclusion? Maybe Andrew?
1: So I think context is important, and, and I think it's, uh, it's 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 worth making the point that it could be an existential threat, largely driven by the uh, the interference of legislative oversight and, and you know, political interference on policies that change the coverage that actually existed into into something that didn't exist. And so, when you add up the total insured limits on the property side, which are, which are huge, uh, and you consider that this is this is a threat that has Global dimensions um, it 's not like cat that's regional and non correlating you very quickly get up to a, uh, to numbers that exceed the capital and surplus of the insurance industry so that 's where we came from uh, it's not meant to be a hysterical assessment that insured losses will present an existential threat it, the operative word there is could
0: and do you think it's a kind of zero sum game anyway if uh, politicians for example did decide to have retroactive cover and collectively bankrupt the entire insurance industry then I presume they, they might realize that they would have to bail the whole insurance industry out and they wouldn't they'll be back where they started do you, think do you think it's likely
1: do I think what well, some interference is likely kind
0: of retroactive yeah. some some forcing of retroactive coverage I
1: think I, I think it's too early I think I think there are there are lobbyists to be better informed than me but I think you hit the nail on the head which is that it's a nice soundbite to say we'll, we'll we'll get this pool of capital to respond <laughs> but uh, there isn't enough capital in the industry to respond to what they want to so could there be some compromises in terms of supervision and rate increases and things like that possibly but I do think it's a zero-sum game because it all bounces back to the state at some level anyway if they do that
0: what's developed this week certainly in, in public pronouncements um I've uh, had John Neal and various others to say that it probably is right to assume that the COVID-19 loss is going to be the last the largest insured loss event in history Would would you be agreeing with that I certainly think it has the potential to be the largest insurance event, whether it's the largest insured loss
1: event. I think there's some uncertainty. But what's interesting is you've got you've got impact on the asset side of the balance sheet, which at its nadir uh, during the first quarter was 20 percent of capital. It's rebounded since then. But, you know, we've got a a lot of the year yet to go. And in terms of nominal insured loss dollars, uh, I think that's perfectly plausible that it could be the largest insured event. But I do think it's worth thinking about well, you know, what was the impact on capital of the 1908 San Francisco earthquake? What was the impact of of uh, insured loss after 9-11 on the then capital? And I think that sort of equalizes things out a little bit. But I think we're sort of you know, sharpening the blade here. Uh, it, it certainly has the potential, I would say, likelihood of being a very significant event
0: for the insurance industry. Okay. Um, in your report, you, you mentioned sort of four, uh, the four main effects. Of we've got the the asset side uh, effect that you, you've um, you, you've already mentioned the asset side hit to our balance sheet. The liability, obviously, we've got the liability side, uh, which is is fairly obvious and apparent and developing. Uh, we've also got existing adverse prior year development, which was just really starting to manifest itself as uh, before all this happened, and also we've got the GDP-related hit to all of our income as economies slow down and risk units are diminished going forward. Out of those four effects, uh, I wondered if you had had to place a bet on this, which do you think would be the most painful to reinsurers?
2: So I think from a reinsurance point of view, what you really got to consider is the differentiated strategy that all reinsurers have. So if all of these four issues are going to manifest themselves to reinsurers in differing ways. And really, it's not yet clear um, what the landscape is. It's continuously evolving. I think if you were to ask the community maybe four weeks ago, they would have come to you with a different set of answers than the, the ordering that we would come up with today. But also, it really tests the, resili- the resilience of reinsurance strategies. And so, you know, one reinsurer that has a different portfolio from another reinsurer is very much gonna get affected in a different way. But at the crux of the issue, I think what it comes down to, it will be capitalization and the, the strategy behind capitalization of different reinsurance groups, their size and their dominance in specific areas, the nature of their portfolio. So for a reinsurer that is considering the property and casualty business on a commercial lines aspect will be affected differently from a reinsurer that, that has a, a live portfolio on their books or uh, reinsures a large segment of the health insurance market or indeed personal lines. And I think once you get into those issues, you'll see a wide array of differing reactions. And I think there's also, and you have to add to that regional nuances as well, that different sections of the globe will behave and react in a different way. So it's, it's really hard to say, to answer your question, it's really hard to rank whether the GDP hit to income is going to be more substantial to the community as a whole than adverse prior year development, because you have to get down to the specifics. But quantum wise, to Andrew's earlier point, this is a seismic event, even in financial terms, looking at the asset side of the balance sheet. And so it's kind of more of an impact from both the financial impact globally on an economic basis, as well as the loss impact and how it might affect losses. I know that's non-nots in terms of ranking, but it's hard to give you one without being specific.
0: Yeah, for some context on the asset side, obviously the last big asset hit we had was in the global financial crisis, 2008-2009. Currently, we're not as bad as where we were. I think I, I, do, I recall we were probably about 10 or 11 12% by the time uh, we added up all the numbers. Uh, back it was close early. to 15 I think, actually. Yeah, think yeah. It was
1: yeah, close yeah. to 15 yeah. yeah. Yeah, and very asymmetrically spread as well. There were some reinsurers who were who were much more severely affected because of their investment portfolio. But yeah, it, we're, we're now, we were there at a point in time during Q1, but it's leveled itself out uh, towards the latter part of the month. So as I said, it was, it was minus 20, which was probably slightly worse uh, than we saw in the GFC, but has improved uh, for, for the balance of the quarter. Okay. probably Still so got three um, quarters to go, then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely yes
1: I, I, I think you're building on what Princeton was saying I, I think the the one two punch of the asset and the liability side is is probably where we would say you probably want to focus I think the existing prior year development and we we've, we've just working on some analysis at the moment I think you know the statistical view of prior year development on some casualty lines is probably 10 billion you're looking at three times that in terms of capital uh, from on the asset side. And the GDP-related hit, it's not really a hit. You, you, don't get, you don't get hurt by stuff you didn't write. And people will say that you change the denominator that affects the expense ratio, but it's not a hit. It's just something you wished you had. Uh, prior year development is a hit. Asset side uh, volatility and, and how that flows through the balance sheet, that is a hit. So I think we probably say asset liability, left hook, right hook. Exactly. Um, and uh, prior year development probably a distant third, and um, and the GDP related hit we kind of don't see as a hit. It's uh, is it, it bad for you? Does that makes sense.
0: But it affects your ability to trade through. though if you're stuck with old liabilities and now you've got um, you know 20% less income because the global GDP is contracted by 15 to
1: 20%. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, so it's a, it's an amplifier rather than a factor. It amplifies the problem, but but it isn't the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is the one-two hit on the asset and the liability side.
0: Okay, we were talking about capital. We've got big renewals coming up, particularly relating to the North Atlantic hurricane season. So <coughs> going into that season, how well capitalized is the insurance market today?
1: Well, I think it's sort of 95% as well capitalized as it was at the beginning of the year, is the glib answer. I mean, if you look at the analysis that we shared, what the industry's shock absorbers, capital shock absorbers have done, is avoided avoided a punch and yeah there's a hit to capital but the rating agencies are yet to pronounce but it doesn't look like the industry position has been seriously dented obviously the loss picture hasn't flown through yet uh, it'll be interesting to see how q1 returns and and the losses develop over q2 but on the surface the industry looks as if it has coped with these well and the excess buffers have done what they should have done. And to some degree, Mark, those that who those who railed against regulators and rating agencies saying, you know, we need these excess capital buffers and those who counted it saying excess capital's the bane of returns and investors have probably been proven to be right.
0: Um, Okay so capital's sort of there but obviously it's a massive psychological effect uh, on everybody on their risk appetite. So what's your assessment of reinsurer risk appetite going up to you know now going into Florida renewals?
2: Yeah so I think the appetite going into the Florida renewals will be the first uh, true test of the reinsurance market following the recent events from COVID-19 and actually uh, it will be somewhat of a reflection of exactly what reinsurers believe today. But a lot of it is going to depend on the primary insurance market themselves and what they traditionally rely upon in terms of dependency on reinsurance structures that help them trade through the year, uh, their own capitalization and liquidity, and how much of the cost that they can pass on to their customer base who may not be willing to pay that. And so I think there's going to be like a a trifecta effect of reinsurance purchasing and what that looks like. But really, it's going to vary again company by company. And it's also going to bear a reflection on how much risk uh, reinsurers are willing to onboard at this stage of, of the year for 2020.
0: Are Florida Cedents facing something of a perfect storm? They've had loss deterioration on the, on the large loss events, they've got a very litigious environment. It's also difficult to put through uh, original rate increases. And now they're presumably faced with reinsurers that are going to want more money one way or another. Andrew, what do you, how are you going to approach those difficult conversations?
1: So I think they've already started. Um, uh, I, I think, I mean, I like the, uh, I like the headline of a, of a perfect storm for Florida carriers, but the conversation of started has already started. You're absolutely right to make the point that, and I think this is not specifically about Florida carriers, but if you have been highly leveraged and your business model is highly dependent on external risk finance, then to the extent the price of that external risk finance and the availability of that external risk finance moderates, there's, there's a squeeze, there's an inevitable squeeze. And it's, it's, it's also true where the market sells um, instruments that work on a an, on an occurrence basis that aren't back-to-back with the original policies. It's also the case that you know, there's some transitional issues that can happen when coverage disappears. So are they facing a perfect storm? I think, they, I think they've got to, to continue the metaphor, lots of headwinds. And I think what, one of the things that Princeton was saying, was absolutely right, is one of the challenges for reinsurers with this event unfolding is to what extent in a year of balance sheet adjustment, witting or unwittingly de-risking the portfolio, to what extent do you feel it prudent to make an outsized bet on a natural peril that will probably peak during Q3, Q4 of a year that is also going to see some loss emergence and some volatility in the market. So there may well be a sort of an outer limit in terms of how much risk reinsurers will take. I wouldn't say irrespective of, of the premium, but I think their, their appetite will need to be wetted differently than it would have been if what was happening now was happening in the absence of COVID-19 and everything that was taking place. So perhaps in the final analysis, my hope for Florida is that it's important that reinsurers understand that these organizations played a very important role in facilitating access to private capital into the state and for them to participate in what over the longer period has been a very important part of many reinsurers' cat portfolio. Difficult recent trading conditions, but over the longer term, they're important. And my hope is that if capital is in short supply, that they discriminate because the good ones really do need long-term support. And there is quite a wide spread between the performance of those companies. And my hope is that reinsurers differentiate rather than take an across-the-board position. And that would be the right and efficient thing to
0: do. What you're saying is that a bit more rate, and then that will get them uh, to, you know, to do a bit more.
1: Uh, A bit more rate might not get them to do a bit more. Um, That's what I'm saying. I I think that you have some sympathy with people whose balance sheets might have been impacted over the last couple of quarters. Imagining how much risk do they want to take in the third and fourth quarter of 2020, irrespective of rate. I don't want to sort of portend that there's going to be a major crisis in Florida yet. I'm just saying that COVID-19 has had an effect in revealing the strains that exist in a leveraged model that is dependent on external risk finance when the price of that finance and the availability of that finance is curtailed. And the reason it's curtailed is because I think there will be some reinsurers are saying, you know, cat isn't, isn't infinite. You know, you can't just keep on accumulating it, accumulating accumulating it. So irrespective of price, there's like an, a natural boundary beyond which you can't go and is it the case that reinsurers will be resetting those boundaries in Q3 it's too early to tell but it's possible it's certainly going to be i think the the sort of the most challenging market conditions we've seen in many many years you know there are some placements that are out in the market now there are discussions taking place i don't think anyone's that's involved in in this market is going to be listening to this podcast and thinking that what I've said is an epiphany. I think I think
2: this is exactly what the work market is working out now. Yeah, so, and I think to, to Andrew's point a little bit further is that it's not only really the cost of capital that's going to influence this discussion, it's the availability of capital. And I think right now, you know, it, it's going to be very challenging to access new fresh capital whilst the entire financial community are struggling to understand the effect of COVID-19 on total portfolios. And so... It's just as much of an issue of cost than as availability and availability that will drive cost even further. And I think that's what the key issues are going to be for emerging for 2020. As the full extent of COVID-19 fully develops, I think once concerns ease and capital markets are, make themselves accessible again, we might see that that part of the equation is, is short-lived. For the time being, there's going to be issues accessing capital.
0: Yeah, uh, it's probably an appropriate time to be talking about uh, the higher end of the the reinsurance, the retro and ILS and alternative capital providers. In your report, you mentioned about some multi-strategy providers of capital. Of course, at the moment, they've got bigger fish to fry. It seems that they've got very, very high, presumably high risk, high return games to play in other capital markets presumably in corporate bonds and other places where they can get potentially fantastic returns so at the moment does it mean that reinsurance or catastrophe risk is relatively unattractive at the moment in terms of if you've got all these many different strategies that are ongoing is it not really these guys top priority that they've got far better better prospective returns on in other classes i mean in well other
1: yeah other classes many of whom all correlate in the tail uh, and, and I think insurance as an asset class will will have revealed itself to be delivering the diversification that it promised and, and that certainly seems to be what what is happening now and there is great value in diversification to to money managers so I don't think it's quite as simple as there are there are opportunities elsewhere there are but to the extent they all correlate in the tail then what that sort of curtails one's appetite to, to want to allocate in those, all those spaces. I think on the retro side, the retro ILS side, whatever the trap capital issues were going into the year have been amplified. I think whatever the availability of capital into this has been amplified, the challenges have been amplified. But for the fact that I think, I think thus far insurance assets have performed extraordinarily well in terms of diversification, I wouldn't underestimate the value of that. I think uncertainty over what's covered and what's not covered, and the sort of move away from you know, name perils to all perils and UNL. I think investors are quite naturally thinking that maybe given experience in the last three years, many of the losses uh, exceeding model estimates coming from perils that were you know, hard, hard to model, but probably not as comprehensively modeled in hindsight as was necessary. I think there'll be another hurdle to overcome with investors, which is what are we actually responding to? And are we pricing for it? So I think all of those things need to play through. I think they will play through. And I think we will see retro as an even more challenging market than it was destined to be. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like last year it was, was a walk in the park or a cakewalk. So all of the factors that you've alluded to will have an effect on supply and demand. And if you think about it in the context of balance sheet compression, you know, there, sh- there should be more demand. I mean, carriers, as we said in the report, have have unwittingly woken up at the end of Q1, holding more risk than they anticipated when they went into Q1. And it's got nothing to do with losses. So, you know, when they we also recommended that they they make some forward looking analyses and start at looking at the impact of balance sheet compression against a range of scenarios and run their capital models so that they can make the decision uh, that needs to be made, which is I'm happy with that additional risk in the portfolio, or I'm not happy with it, and I choose to either hedge it or reduce it. But you don't want to do that going into the beginning of the year, and you don't want to come to that conclusion when you're doing your return. So, and I think most companies are already doing that. So I, I think we could see, out of all of that, we could see retro demand go up, we could see retro supply go down, and I think capitalism is a great equaliser, and I, and I think what will happen is that capital will flow, but the terms on which it flows, the coverage for which it's prepared to respond, and who it aligns with, are all yet to be
0: determined. Currently, are most reinsurers confident that their retro will be picking up back-to-back with them on BI exposures that are related to COVID-19, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing with retro is you're, you're dealing with the most sophisticated part of the, of the value chain in terms of knowledge. So if they think it's covered, it will be. And, and, and if they don't think it is, they probably know why. So I, I don't think there's going to be a huge amount of uncertainty in terms of basis risk of the products they bought. I mean, they know what they bought. So I don't think there are going to be too many shocks.
0: Okay. Well, we're talking about, I suppose, a time to be cautious. You know, reinsurance uh, uh, in its most fundamental uh, guise is capital. So you're talking about potential for uh, an increase in demand for retro. (laughs) What about just fundamental across the board demand for reinsurance as seeding companies think, well, I, you know, I should buy a bit more quota share. I should, you know, I should have give myself some capital relief by just buying more insurance this year. Uh, do Do you see that happening?
1: I certainly see it being part of the uh, the armory that 's available to them. I mean what we 're talking about is is the consequences of balance sheet compression and the need for additional external external risk finance now it doesn 't have to be external risk finance you, you can you can get internal risk finance you can uh, and there have been examples of rights issues and equity offerings and i 'm sure there will be debt equity instruments that organizations will look at to to help them deal with any additional capacity they may need or additional capacity they may want in order to take advantage of improved market conditions. Reinsurance is only one of them. And I think because of the fluidity of capital uh, and the various instruments that are available to to people to sort of source external risk finance, there's a bit of a, a comparison and a bit of a ceiling in terms of how far things will move. There's a point at which reinsurance, the non-recourse instrument of choice becomes actually really expensive if seeding commissions plummet and loss ratio caps are put on and the box is so tight that actually you might as well go and and raise some traditional equity or debt equity to replace it. So I, I think behind your question is, do we think there's going to be a need for additional risk finance? Yes. Will reinsurance play a role in that?
0: Yes, it will. It will. And do you think currently the way that everything's stacked up that reinsurance is still going to be an attractive purchase? It has been an attractive purchase in the last, you know, decade, particularly for seedants. And do you think it's going to continue, it will be able to maintain those economics to be attractive versus other forms of capital? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the economics have to improve for the sellers, but they also have to work for the buyers.
1: And, and our advice to clients is to make sure you don't get trapped and get on the, get on the wrong side of that. And you've got Time and the ability to, to 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 make sure that that you can navigate in control of your strategy rather than a sort of a victim of of, of of a poor strategy. But no, I mean I think reinsurance has acquitted itself absolutely fantastically over the last ten years. I think there is there is probably a price correction that is necessary for reinsurers. Their cost of capital has gone up. Their margin requirements have gone up. I think it's unrealistic to assume that reinsurance capital is going to be made available at less than cost and and with with not decent returns but i think uh, so i th- so i think demand will for reinsurance will be the natural port of call its response has been phenomenal i think the behaviour of reinsurers thus far has been really pretty good and so yeah i do think there's going to be an increase in demand uh, and i think uh, we like many other people in the market have to have to help satisfy that demand by working on supply.
0: Okay, so we're coming up to renewals. Your report mentions, you know, this is, COVID-19 is now a known event. You said in in, in reinsurance terms, it's a bit like having had a hurricane already made landfall. It's like a live cat. So uh, given that, is it fair for reinsurers to be asking to exclude COVID-19 as of the nearest available renewal? And what are the practicalities around that? Uh, Also, your report did say that generally if, if cedents were able to show that on the original risk they were excluding, that reinsurers were happy to follow them and not have to slap anything on the reinsurance contract that was exclusion, do you think that's going to continue going forward, say, so particularly for one six. Okay. So I think fair is, is it's a, it's probably the wrong word. Do I think
1: it's appropriate for reinsurers to be listening to clients who can make coherent cases that what they're doing is reasonable and doesn't expose them to an amplification of a known loss. Absolutely. And I think they will and they do. There's no doubt about that. There are, there are people who have given affirmative coverage for some time. They've managed it in a particular way and it's contained and narrow and, and walled off. And, and I would continue continuity to be extended there. I think if insurance is about distributing fortuitous loss around a large risk pool to expect somebody to continue to make available uh, and expose their capital to a known loss probably has some outer limits to it strategically. So I I do think that's going to be an area of discussion. What what I think is, does need to be considered and, and we're talking about instruments where time and relationships are super important. I mean, reinsurance, still is, is an instrument where time is of economic value both to the buyer and the seller. So we should look at these things over a longer time horizon than the three or four days leading up to the renewal of a particular instrument. I think if, if reinsurers' position is we don't want to expose a second set of limits given the complication of these, these events, I do think there is a discussion to be had about how they support clients when they wind down their exposure. And deal with the runoff exposure the clients will be faced with a sudden reduction in the availability of say cat mm-hmm. so i think i mean fair is, is is an emotional term i think it is perfectly reasonable for clients to expect to have a debate with their reinsurers i think it's perfectly reasonable for reinsurers to make the point that you know given the accumulation may be falling to them they don't want to pour gasoline on the loss and, and, and continue to amplify it and open up a, se- a second to second letters. You mentioned, but I don't um, think it's that simple. There is runoff to be dealt with.
0: Yeah, you mentioned different classes. There are some classes that you, you said in your report, there are some classes that it seems to be, it's clear, for, everybody knows it's clear that we should have exclusionary language because we, we know that this class has never intended to cover pandemic risk. Right. And there are others where not, and you mentioned in perhaps an employment liability. I was wondering, for example, what about situations where you know perhaps there's a moral a moral obligation to continue cover where it was definitely intended, and, and what about on particularly on original policies that are on a claims made basis, for example, as well, where um, you know we know the event has occurred but the claim may not have been made, and you know we don't want to end up with a situation where you know there's effectively retroactive date inception for some of these things. I, I don't think that's a reinsurer's issue, I think that's an insurer's issue.
1: Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I really do. I mean, I, I think how, how do you deal with the intricacies of a a known event and then you get into all sorts of interesting arguments about direct versus indirect and I I don't think that's a reinsurance issue I think I think that's an issue the reinsurance industry is keen to understand but I think that issue is uh, is one that should be addressed to the insurers who are dealing with those issues on claims made policies on occurrence policies when was the occurrence I mean I, I think it's an insurance issue because the insurance market does a pretty good job of following the fortunes. Quota shares follow, and and um, you know excess of losses generally follow too. So I think that's an insurance issue. It's a big issue, but I, I, I yeah, but I, I don't think the reinsurers will steer the bus there.
0: Okay. What about we've been talking about risk appetite generally? This has been, uh, you know, we could describe this as a black swan event, or or, or frankly, it was just a <laughs> swan. I mean, we we knew we've known that pandemic risk exists. You know, it's a white swan, frankly. But um, we can argue about that until the cows come home. But has it uh, woken up reinsurers to other known unknowns or other potential black swans, things that we've also been talking about quite a lot, for example, like other potentially systemic risks like cyber, for example. Has it woken them up to sort of, you know, um, risk awareness around other things? So you find that you're getting lots more queries from reinsurers about yeah. what, what exposures they may be in for.
2: First of all, let's, let's go to the point that... So the black swan part of COVID-19 and how it's manifested itself is effectively... I think the industry as a whole considered pandemic exposures and have long time been doing that since SARS was around and and even before that. So I think they have always considered pandemic exposure, but I don't think anyone anticipated appropriately or to the extent that it should have the the global effect of the the actions taken by governmental authorities to shut down parts of the economy. And I think the, the correlating piece of that action, as well as the pandemic spread, and the epidemiology of an unknown virus at that time, at this time now, I think that's the kind of the, the accumulation of those things and the effect of it is the black swan. And so I think reinsurers will be considering and insurers will be considering how uh, they consider correlation of certain uh, systemic issues and what the potential consequences of those will be. So I think the industry is also very good at uh, looking at unknown unknowns and understanding uh, or trying to quantify or trying to make sure that their capital is resilient enough to react to that situation. And if, if you look at the industry today and reacting to this significant once-in-a-lifetime event, it's, it's still here and it's still functioning. It's still paying claims. There is some functionality in terms of how it's going to uh, trade forwards. There's access to capital. And they're thinking that through. And so, you know, I, I think the industry has been quite thoughtful around this. Is there Are there always going to be factors that are going to arise every decade that haven't been considered to the extent that they should have? Of course there will be. But, you know, I think the industry has a good way and a good framework, risk management framework in place to continually assess emerging risks.
0: What about going forward, we've had announcements this week, Uh, we've had uh, Stephen Kaplan and other luminaries in the industry, and I think uh, somebody from Willis-Ree as well, looking at potential pandemic re in the UK. How insurable is pandemic risk now now that we know a lot more about it and about how systemic it is globally? And do you think it will have to be a public-private type solution?
2: So I think there's two pieces in that. So pandemic risk, I think... I think if you look at it I think the characteristics of having an insurable event it definitely fits that bill and the quantification of that I think we're becoming more and more acutely aware of there's a lot of science behind this and there's certainly uh, a lot of uh, factual information that presents itself there are you know there's going to be experience that's going to be drawn upon so I definitely think that pandemic should be an insurable event how occurs and the quantification of the effect of pandemic and how it spreads regionally I think those are things that we need to study more thoughtfully and definitely the private public sector should be involved in that and there's and there's an element of public sector that should definitely be involved because of the systemic nature of pandemic um, consequences and to keep financial systems alive and running the reinsurance is a valuable part of the kind of macro financial mechanisms to keep global economies running. And so I think from that perspective, yes, reinsurance should be part of that conversation, governmental authorities and the like, and and certainly pandemic should be an insurable issue.
1: I mean, I think if you think of insurance as, um, I mean, the bookmaking analogy is inelegant, but I mean, bookmakers run books, not entirely concerned about who wins, they just want to balance the book. And insurance is a lot more sophisticated than that. But to to continue the metaphor, the problem, I mean, what the insurance industry does, and the reinsurance industry does in particular, is it sources lots of non-correlating pools of risk, which it funds extreme outcomes in any one or two with the fact that not all of them will go. To use the bookmaker analogy, what, what we're experiencing at the moment is seven winners all coming home in the same race. And I think it reaches a point, I think, in principle, I don't know whether we're there yet, but in principle, where when you can no longer spread a a threat, a pool of risk across the capital base in the insurance industry, and terrorism would be a a good good, uh, proxy in the US, it absorbs what it can, and it plays a very effective role in quantifying risk and pricing risk and providing guidance in terms of risk management and and the insurance industry does a really good job at that. And it does a really good job at working out target versus non-target and what's high risk and what's low risk. But there comes a point with a certain type of threat and maybe pandemic is one of them as it affects multiple lines of business. You can't balance it with anyone And, and the risk that would otherwise revert to the state if the insurance industry said we can't insure it, goes into the state at dollar one rather than at, say, dollar $200 billion. And I think, you know, you mentioned the group. I think Stephen's, Stephen's leading an initiative with Julian Anoizzi. And I think he's, you know, he's got the, the right people with Aon and, and Marsh and, and Willis James Ken is our representative yeah. on that group, but he may have others on it. Because, you know, that group has the experience of looking at pools of risk and how that can be financed by the industry. What is the impact in terms of the overall industry? And at what point can we take the pain without ending up writing checks we can't cash? And, and, I, and I think um, it's absolutely the case that that initiative needs to be supported. It's got some great brains on that group, and I'm sure it will come up with some good recommendations. And uh, we all saw the Marsh letter. I thought it was a a very, very well set out letter as to how the industry can play a role in financing this this new threat that very few people thought of.
0: Do you think a a useful thing about the insurance industry, of course, is it, it is a useful conduit for if it ends up being state aid in some form or another or state relief, then the insurance industry already has the existing infrastructure to pay to pay claims. Yeah,
1: I, I, yeah, in fact, I had that conversation with some of the other day. Which is 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 if if what the politicians wanted was a was a medium by which claims were allocated, I think I think government departments would struggle to adjudicate business interruption losses. You know, they're complicated for experts. Uh, the industry has the capability of doing that. What it shouldn't be forced to do is, is to actually sign the checks where, when the coverage was explicitly excluded for the reasons I said earlier on. But, I mean, if there's some role the industry can play in facilitating the distribution of cash from the state to, to, to various individual enterprises, I can't speak on behalf of the industry, but I think it would be willing to do that. What, what, it, what it can't do is be bullied into, into changing coverage that was specifically excluded into one that, that politicians wished had been available. <laughs>
0: Um, There's only one question that I didn't ask that perhaps I should have asked earlier was about, we've had some reasonably high profile returns of premium from, this is probably mostly personal lines insurers. This is on on both sides of the Atlantic before fairly idle classes like uh, personal auto, for example, uh, some return premiums there. Are reinsurers being good, pragmatic partners and supporting those students when they're doing that kind of stuff, when they're giving giving premium back for unused miles that are not driven, for example?
1: Yeah. yeah, so I, I know that um, the Chinese regulators asked for a, a premium holiday and the major reinsurers in that business were totally supportive, mostly European reinsurers, totally supportive of that initiative and supported their clients. And, and there was a coherence to doing that, as you say, the, the exposures were down. Uh, I, I mean, I think as this thing unfolds, I think to the extent there's a quota share, uh, one sort of implicitly hitched one's wagon to... Uh, to that initiative so that that will naturally follow it becomes a little bit more complicated on on non-proportional instruments if if you're a reinsurer trading for 20 years with somebody and you've had the effects of some maybe UK changes in legislation around how liability claims are going to be adjudicated and you've got a big deficit, you, you, you might want to have a discussion. And, and the client might say, look, we, we, we view the excess of losses different, but differently, because we'll view those over a longer time horizon horizon, and we need to think about sort of profitability and other underlying issues. So I think by and large, the market from what we've seen has been very responsive. But I, I do think there are some areas where the sort of immediate uh, desire to want to sort of waive minimum premiums, for example, on excess of loss becomes complicated because as I say, certainly on the liability side and property side as well, the span 10, 15 years and there's bank and balance and uh, are we in deficit? Are we not in deficit? And, and some of the classes, Mo- motor you said is an easy one to explain if a, car is sitting on the drive it's unlikely to collide with anything but some of the other areas where exposure is is a little more opaque to evaluate you talked about claims made earlier Uh, things may be inactive now but you might have you know 50 years worth of uh, actions that still need to be insured so I think it's easy on the quota shares and I think the industry has done a a very good job on other instruments uh, there's there's a discussion to be had and broader criteria than just looking at uh, whether or not the exposure may or may not be down for a period of time
0: just want to ask you also have you seen any uh, we've we've seen the nature of as we're talking about the, the nature of risk changing for example the nature of risk in aviation is now that we seem to have a, we have a hangar risk or down you know we've got grounded aircraft risk Ground and risk, now that yeah, they're yeah. with accumulations in large airports and where they're parked up uh, has that changed any of it? Have you seen any interesting changes in, in demand for, presumably that is now, a, is there a little spike in um, aviation reinsurance demand for ground risk uh, accumulation covers and other things? Yeah. So, so, any, so, other, have you, any other observations that you've seen?
2: Um,
0: uh, I think you see it in
1: marine. I think you see it in cargo. You see clustering. I mean, what you've, what you've pointed out is the sort of whack-a-mole nature of risk. You know, things might be not be flying, but they're they're, they're still hundred million dollar assets sitting on the tar next to one another. Uh, sometimes in parts of the world that have natural catastrophe and and, um, and natural hazards. So, yeah, there is a spike. Yeah, and I, and I and I think that that is all flowing through as people are examining the changes in their exposure with their RDSs, and and that actually ties back neatly into the recommendations we gave in our report, which is is you need to start undertaking all of that analysis now to take care of all of these things and see what your capital model reveals to you in real time and do that now rather than do that at the end of the year. So, yes, the nature of the risk is changing. It is a bit like whack-a-mole, and we are seeing some concentrations in certain areas.
2: These are the indirect consequences of COVID-19. So, like you just said, marine hull, marine cargo, ports and terminal accumulation, airline accumulation on the ground. And there's lots of instances of this where profiles are changing subtly, exposing themselves to new risks. And that's where we're starting to having to really think through what coverage looks like and then assist our clients on that basis. And that's through every sector, pretty much.
0: I'm going to end with a a fairly generic question. You know, this is a crisis and a crisis is usually a time to be a great it's usually a great differentiator between who the, who the best are and who the who the merely average and, and and the below average are so how are the best reinsurers differentiating themselves at the moment
1: calmness and resilience so I, I think the ability to avoid a sort of knee-jerk reaction and to stimulate debate measured debate you know we saw early out of the blocks you know lots of exclusion 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 and um understandable uh, very understandable that, that would happen but the more significant and, and and sophisticated reinsurers didn't do that and decided to have uh, conversations with clients and showed a willingness to have a balanced discussion so that we could crystallize on what the issues are. I mean, you know, putting a COVID-19 exclusion on a private passenger auto physical damage quota share doesn't sound like it's particularly uh, high on the threat hierarchy. And I'm, I'm being facetious by using that as an example, but, but that sort of everything's got to have an exclusion. It's understandable, but it's not sensible. And I think, so I think, the, I think the, the, the more sophisticated reinsurers have created a risk threat. They've engaged with clients. They've listened to clients. They want to understand what their clients are doing to manage the risk because they are the originators of the original risk. And I think the second thing is, is uh, resilience, is, is to show a, an appetite and a disposition to want to trade through. Now, the debate about, around the returns they need uh, may change. There'll be a discussion around the extent to which certain perils need, may need to be specifically priced for or sublimited, and, and, and there's a huge list of items that will be debatable. But I think, you know, the things that will define reinsurers will be, as I say, resilience and, um, and calmness. And I think with that, we'll be able to, to deal
0: with everything. Great. And I'm sure when it's all over, we'll remember. we'll remember that.
1: We will. You're right in your question that this is where uh, reputations in the business are made and broken. And that was true after 9-11. It was true after... Opportunities were were misread when exploitation uh, rather than a collective agreement to try and resolve something emerged. People didn't forget it, and it manifested itself in increased shares with some markets and diminished shares with others. And frankly, that moderation is hugely important because it's what helps the industry arrive at balanced, reasonable positions. So, yeah, it'll be interesting right, well, to look back. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks Mark. Thank you.
0: Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.